you're listening to the Wild Voices Project. And today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Annette Faye, Brown Junior Research Fellow in Biological Sciences at the Queen's College at the University of Oxford. I've also got an announcement for you today. The Wild Voices Project, as always, brings you the stories of the people saving nature. But today, on World Environment Day, I'm very excited to announce that we're joining Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals. You can find out more about us at wildvoicesproject.org, as normal. And you can learn more about the new global community that's being launched today at wild-voices.org. So should we get started? Yeah, let's go. So um, in one of the in one of the articles that I was reading that you sent me through, I read that um, or someone had written about you that you have a lifelong love of wildlife. And the first question that I usually ask people is, what role did nature and wildlife play for them growing up? Um, so I've always been fascinated by wildlife and loved being in nature. I grew up in a, a very tiny village in the middle of France. Um, well, the only thing to do was to just walk around in nature and look at birds and other animals around. So I, I can't remember a time where I wasn't interested in nature. And actually, um, a few years ago, I found, again, my, my a diary I used to keep when I was like a really a little girl. And the first entry of this diary is about how I climbed in a tree and watched like grey tits and blue tits for hours and hours and I describe in great length like how beautiful they are and extra and <laughs> the second entry was then about my boyfriend <laughs> but the first one was for the birds um, and yeah I've cont- I think I've, I've always been fascinated by them and I th- when I was about 10 years old um, I told my parents I want to become an ornithologist because you know birds is what really interests me and they told me that's not a job you cannot be an ornithologist. It can be your hobby. Um, and I believe them. I think they just didn't know better. And so um, I've, I've always been a scientist anyway. So I went to science studies and studied uh, engineering, maths, physics and chemistry at school and university up to master's level. And then halfway through my studies, I then realized that I could study birds for a job because I, I met someone who was an entomologist and he was studying ants. And so I was like, wait a minute, if you study ants for your job, maybe I can study birds for my job. So then I came to, um, I went to Cambridge to do a, an internship um, to work on great tits. Uh, so th- that was my first actual research project in, uh, at the University of Cambridge. I loved it and then moved to Oxford to do a master's. The plan was to stay for one year, but clearly that hasn't worked because I'm still here. Um, so yeah, that's how I, I switched. And, um, but yeah, I've always been interested in them. It's not... Yeah, I can't remember a time where I wasn't just fascinated by anything that just flew past the window or, uh, yeah, or sang in the tree. <laughs> That's really interesting because I had quite a similar um, experience. I ha- I've been interested in birds and wildlife since I was about five. Okay. And I remember in my teenage years saying to my parents, you know, I'm really interested in wildlife and I, I think that's what I want to do for my career and I was told a similar thing you know that's not really a career or a yeah. job and then it was only part way through my studies that I realized actually that's a thing that you can yeah, do and earn money for and I was like yeah. whoa hold on a minute I would have taken completely different decisions but you know it's all worked out yeah no, that's great. yeah yeah and in a way I'm glad I did studies um you know engineering studies because um I learned a lot about maths and computer science, for example, which I can now apply to analysing biological data. Mm. So it's not it's not all wasted. Um, but yeah, sometimes, I don't know, my parents were a little bit surprised when I said, <laughs> after I finish this degree, I'm going to go and study birds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I think they might still be hoping it's a phase that I sort of snap out of at some point. <laughs> I think we get used to the idea now because it's been many years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Possibly. Um, what was what was the sort of wildlife that you had around you in France growing up, and what was the countryside like? And do you feel that it's that there are any kind of key differences from how things are here in the UK? Um, so 
So I live in, I used to live in um, a square mountainous area. It's in the Massif Central. So the mountains are not, not quite as high as the Alps, the Pyrenees, but they're quite high mountains. Um, but the countryside is a bit hilly. It's green. Uh, the birds are very similar to British birds, you know, robins, great tits, mm. blackbirds and all that kind of stuff. Um, we do have, uh, you know, black red starts breeding, you know, in the tree in the garden. So that's quite nice. <laughs> um, but it's it's not hugely different from here. Yeah. Um, and then when I but I, when I was a kid, my granddad had a a flat on the Mediterranean Sea, in the Camargue, which is the estuary of the Rhone, and these are wetlands. And so I remember also going on holidays there, and I just loved it because you can go and see loads of, like pink flamingos and lots of other things that I didn't normally see. Um, so these are the sort of two places where I grew up interested in wildlife. But, but interestingly, now I study seabirds, but I never really got to meet seabirds until quite late in my in my life. And so I wasn't really interested in, in seabirds because I just didn't know very much about them at all. So what was it that eventually drew you into seabirds as a particular group? So, so this happened when I was doing my master's here. Um, we had uh, a field ornithology course on Skomer Island in Pembrokeshire, which is a nature reserve with lots of seabirds. And so we were there for just three or four days. But I remember arriving on this island and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, there were puffins, there were guillemots, razor bears. It was so noisy. And, and then um, after sunset, after dark, um, after dark, there were just hundreds of thousands of Manx shearwaters flying everywhere and I'd never seen anything like it. I was just like, this this is the most amazing place I've, never, I've <laughs> ever been to. And I completely fell in love with the place. And then during this course we had, um, there were two PhD students studying seabirds who uh, were in my research group and they just gave us a talk about what they were doing. They were tracking the, the movements of, of seabirds and I just, it was like a click. I was like, yeah, this is, this is exactly why I want to do. This is like the coolest thing ever and this is what I want to do. So that, that's how it happened. And do you remember what it was that fascinated you about birds and wildlife in the first place? What was it that made you go... What, what was it that made you sit in that tree and watch great tits for hours? Why were they so fascinating? It's hard to say. Um, well, I think part of it is the fact that they fly. And actually, my studies are now still about their movements because they can move in a way that we can't. Um, but I I, can't, I don't really know. It's just it's just always been I I, I don't know. I guess they I find them very attractive species and also very I'm I'm interested in the species, but also I think I've always been interested in the behavior of the birds and animal behavior in general. Um, and so you know I would look at I would watch them building a nest or different species taking turns at the feeder or something like that, and I would just find it really fascinating to try and understand how you know how they were. Um, how they were behaving um, and actually when I was oh, less than five years old um, I spent all my summers with my uh, grandmother's chickens trying to train them for to do like an obstacle course and I was trying to follow it to like but, but obviously this wasn't proper animal behavior studies but I had like reinforcements and punishment for those who did well and sadly um, and then after a whole summer my grandmother said I don't understand why my chickens are not laying anymore so I had to stop but I think I've always been interested in like trying to yeah look at the behaviors of of, um, of birds and animals in general we've just got chickens at home <laughs> did you succeed are they trainable no they are not trainable <laughs> Although, but yes, I, I mean, I might have not used the best method because it wasn't really clearly <laughs> planned. But um, yeah, I, I, would, I wouldn't spend too much time on this. Okay. At the moment, they're just eating all my vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping there might be a way to train them away from them. Um, so, so it sounds like maybe before you even knew what behavioural ecology was, you were interested in the behaviour of birds yes. and animals. But I was wondering if you could maybe describe, particularly for someone like me who's by no stretch of the imagination a scientist, what behavioural ecology is all about and why it's important? So behavioural ecology is basically the study of animal behaviour to try and understand the adaptive significance of it, in, not in more sim simple words. Basically, why are animals behaving the way they do and what is the benefit of this in terms of um, their reproductive success and their survival? How is this behaviour going to help them pass on more genes, basically, mm. later on? Why did they evolve to have such behaviour? Um, so that can be migration, for example. That's a behaviour that 
you know, some animals have evolved to, after breeding, move somewhere else, um, mostly because there's not enough resources where they are. So they do this really long journey somewhere else, which may be risky. They spend all the winter in this place, which will have more food. They'll take the journey again. And overall, the ones which have done that will be better off than the ones which stayed, despite the risks of the journey. Mm -hmm. And so little by little, this may evolve to have a migratory population. Um, And does it involve looking at the balance between what animals are able to learn and what they inherit as kind of knowledge or so, behavior um so th- there's a separate part of um sort of biology which looks at the cognition in animals and for example you know can you teach a crow to solve a, a puzzle or something like that but yes it looks at how you can look at how animal learn some behaviors um or inherit them for example if you look at um bird songs you might be able to um, to follow, you know, songs being learned from a neighborhood to another across a woodland, for example, um, and sort of trace where the parents have di- or the offspring have dispersed, bringing the songs of their parents with them and this kind of things. So you can look at this at these things, and you can do genetic studies to, uh, you know, look at the inheritance of uh, such and such behaviors, which is not something I've done, but which which is absolutely possible. Um, yeah. And maybe, maybe this is a bit of an unfair question, but where? When and where did the study of behavioural ecology begin? I'm not going to give you a date, but that was, uh, I think, the first, um, the first person who start, really started animal behaviour, uh, the first ethologist, was uh, Conrad Lorenz, um, who wrote some books about animal behaviour, and then um, he was German, I believe. And, uh, but actually, some very famous people were here in Oxford, and uh, Nico Timbergen, um, after whom the zoology department is is named, um, did really pioneering studies of animal behaviour, and even received a, a Nobel Prize for it. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, pretty impressive. And basically, he, um, yeah, he started doing the studies and sort of set some classical examples of animal behaviour studies, which then inspired lots of people. Um, to do more in which I mean the the field really really expanded once he had started but to me it seems like um, from having read some of your some of your blogs and your articles and your your papers and also from just having picked up stuff in you know in the in the media around around this area there's still so much that we're discovering yeah and that we don't know uh, and you know even about birds or other creatures which are on our doorsteps yes there's still so much that we realize we didn't understand before absolutely i think but i think that's what science is about i mean the more yeah. you discover the more questions are asked yeah um and remain unanswered but um so yes we've we've absolutely learned a lot um in the last in the last few decades but there's a lot still a lot that we don't know and actually some of the questions we can now ask because we have the technology to do it for for example genetic studies there's now techniques to um identify genes and uh do dna sequencing sequencing and all these kind of things which we couldn't do 20 or 30 years ago but um as new techniques emerge they then bring new results that bring new questions and then we'll have to wait for the new techniques to come in um and so i yeah they, they, we are very very far away from understanding everything about animal <laughs> behavior we've just started <laughs> Um, could you say a little bit more about the research that you did on great tits yes. for your internship? So, um, yeah, so what I was doing in Cambridge was looking at um, the effect of plumage, uh, great tit plumage, on the feeding behaviour and the parental behaviour of great tits. So um, great tits are, have yellow breast plumage with a black stripe in the middle and the male black stripe is bigger. And this so the black the width of the black stripe is heritable and the wider the black stripe the more dominant the male is or the more sexy in a way so the females prefer to mate with males which have a white black stripe because then the offspring will have the white black stripe um so that's a, that's a fairly well-known system where there's a heritable trait um that is passed on to next generations and so there's preferential mating with these males because they're attractive basically but what I was looking at was the yellow plumage. So the yellow plumage is also attractive to females, but it's not heritable. And actually, it's a signal of how good the father is, or the male is, at foraging. 
because the more it forages, the more um, carotenoids it eats, which makes the feathers more yellow. And so, even though that's not passable to offspring, or at least as far as we know, then females may benefit from mating with these males um, because they might feed their chick much better. Mm. Um, and so I was looking at, I was measuring um, the yellow plumage of different males and I was then putting uh, videos in the nest to measure the feeding frequency and how much food they were um, how much food they were bringing to the nest and how much begging the chicks were doing to sort of assess how hungry they were um, to try and understand whether um, indeed these, these fathers were better males and whether that had any effect on how the females was behaving mm. um, in a way so whether you know if you have a really good male that feeds your chick a lot maybe you can just relax and you know not do as much uh, quite as much or yeah. Uh, yeah so that was what I was trying to investigate and we were able to see whether or not um if a male had really bright yellow feathers then the width of the black stripe mattered less so we it was only a short project and we didn't have time to put both the black stripe and the yellow at the same oh, time okay. so it was it was separate what well, we did but we did a, an experimental manipulation where we uh well we used like um, organic paint to like paint some males extra yellow or yes yellow and see whether the females were reacting to this um but i think uh the results of this weren't very conclusive because i think the males become too yellow they were like super super birds, basically. <laughs> and I think that brings some of the females out. So in, in the end, we didn't really get any results from this experiment. But Okay, they began glowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that was glowing the dark face. <laughs> and so was it, did you say it was during that time, sorry, that you took your first trip to, to SCOMA? No, that was the year before. Okay. So once I finished this project, uh, I then started a master at Oxford, which was right. a one-year program. And that's during that year that we had this ornithology course. Um, and where I discovered all the seabirds and scoma. And then your work has kind of gone down that route for yes. the last few years, so right? So during my master's, I had to do two projects. And so I did one project on great tits in Whiteham Woods, which is really famous woods because the great tits have been studied from since 1930 or 1940. Mm. And they're all nesting in nest boxes. So we know exactly which birds have had which chicks. And we have like family lines going, you know, generations and generations. These are the ones near Cambridge, right? Those ones? No, no, they're just there. Oh, they're here. Yeah. Right. They're very close to here. So I did a, pro a project on this, and then my other project I did with the seabird group, but unfortunately it couldn't be on seabirds because of timings. Uh, the seabirds weren't on SCOMA at the time I had to do my project. But I worked in this group um, developing some techniques on pigeons. <laughs> um, but I knew that I wanted to do the work in 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 on seabirds, so... Once I was in this group, I was then able to secure a research assistant position and then a PhD position um, to study seabirds. And could you say a little bit about what, what it is that you focused your research on in particular? During my PhD? Yeah, during your PhD, yeah, and what you're focusing on now as well, maybe. Yeah, so, um, so now that I work on seabirds, the main thing I'm looking at is um, the movements that birds do when they're at sea. So all we knew pretty recently about seabirds was when we can observe them, which is when they're on land. But that doesn't happen really often in the life of a seabird because they only come to land to breed. So it might be just a few months um, during, during the summer, but most of the time they're at sea. We don't know where, we have no idea what they're doing. And in some cases, if they're endangered, then we can't protect them because we, we have no idea where they are. Um, and so one of, the, one of the things I'm doing is following the movements of seabirds at sea when you can't see them, and that can be during the breeding season when they go on trips to get food for their chick, or during, migra during the winter when they go on migration. And then I try to relate that with their breeding success, for example, so are there different strategies which are better than others, um, and with environmental data, so are, do certain individuals or certain species have preferences for cold waters or these waters or these ones? Um, so really try and understand um, why they go where they go, what they do when they're at sea, um, how that affects their survival and fitness, um, and these kind of things. Um, and my, my understanding is that you've focused on puffins and on Manx shearwaters? Yes. Uh, so my PhD was entirely on puffins and Manx shearwaters, and now I'm starting to develop some new project on other species, but... They haven't happened yet. Okay. And what were some of the key things that you found out through your PhD? So um, so I was studying the migration of puffins, so we didn't really know at all where puffins migrated. Mm. Um, 
which so yeah when I started my PhD I was astonished to think that you know puffins are so famous everyone in the street would know what a puffin looks like and but yet we knew almost nothing about them you know um people have tried for a long time to um to understand what a puffin spend the winter people try to go on boats or on planes at sea to try and spot like big flocks of puffins in the winter but uh, didn't manage there's even a study where someone to complain and cross the Atlantic, I think, 101 times or something like that, and spotted six puffins. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, it was really a mystery. And and so at the start of my PhD, we uh, were putting these really, really miniature trackers on them that could uh, take two positions a day. They're not very accurate, but accurate enough to know where the birds are roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so we could plot the first maps and the the first tracks of migration routes of puffins. Um, and really, it was a complete surprise because I don't know if you've seen puffins, but they have quite short, stubby wings. It doesn't yeah. look like they're not albatrosses. They're not designed for long flight. <laughs> so we were expecting that they'd be around, uh, you know, around the breeding colony, not too far. Yeah. But actually, some of the birds would go really far away. They could go to uh, so these birds were breeding in Wales and then go to Iceland uh, or even Canada. We had some birds going all the way to so crossing the whole Atlantic yeah, in a few weeks. In headwinds, <laughs> like it's incredible. Uh, some of them would go to the Mediterranean Sea. So that was another thing that we found was unusual: is that in other species, bird species and, and seabird species, you basically all the individuals of the population may, will go to one place more or mm. less and then back. Yeah. But puffins are completely different. So two or three puffins, which might breed within two meters of each other, may spend the winter five thousand kilometers apart. Yeah. You know, one might be in the Mediterranean Sea, the other one might be in Canada. So that was, that's really unusual. But you found that when a pair mate together, if they migrate to roughly the same place, they're more likely to be successful at breeding the next year. Yes. Uh, yes, that's true. So if they follow more similar routes, that doesn't mean they're together, but they follow more similar routes. They lay earlier, which in birds in general is, is b- better for breeding, and they, they're more successful at raising chicks. We don't really know why this is the case. Um, it could be that... If you're following, if you go to, if you follow similar routes, you end up in similar areas. And so you might, you're exposed to the same environment. And so if, what makes you decide to start your journey back home for spring is something in the environment like day, day length yeah. or temperature or something, then you're more likely to synchronize the return with your partner. And in lots of migratory birds, we know that if partners synchronize their return, they can start breeding earlier. So it may be why. So one of the questions that struck me, and maybe we maybe we don't know the answer, is: say you take one pair of puffins, then they do they do migrate not together but to roughly the same place. Is that coincidence, or are they deliberately going in roughly the same direction as each other? How do they know to do that? So <laughs> it's not coincidence because we've tracked uh, multiple pairs of puffins, and uh, the routes were significantly more similar than you would expect by chance. Right. Uh, you know, they were just following any of the routes of the other birds. So they, it's not by chance. Um, the thing, the reason why I say they're not together is because the, the accuracy, the resolution of the date of the trackers we use is about 180 kilometers at best. So it's not very good. Right. So you can definitely see large movements to the Atlantic, for example. But even if two points are on top of each other, you, you cannot say for sure that they're together. And similarly, if they're 200 kilometers apart, you can also not say that they're not together. So they might be together. We just couldn't show that they were. Um, but there's definitely evidence that at least some of the pairs were not together because they were you know, too far apart at certain points. How that would work, I don't know. It could be that um, they are actually together at the very start of migration and sort of follow the same route, even though they, they, they do that. They point their bills in the same maybe. direction. And, yeah. yeah. Um, or... Well, there's one other hypothesis which I think is quite unlikely is that they may, they may pair associatively with people, with uh, puffins which migrate to the same place. So, for example, if they start looking for a mate when they're young in the winter, then automatically they would start pairing with birds which have followed the same routes. Yes. And yeah. because we've followed puffins year after year after year, we know for, for a fact that they have, they always, or most of the time, follow the same migration route. So... You know, if a puffin goes to Canada, it will go to Canada every year for many years. Um, but I think this is quite unlikely because from what I've seen, puffins really, all of the courtship behaviour and mating behaviour happens around the colony. So, I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a bit of a puzzle. Um, so we need to do more study, more, yeah. more research to answer I suppose that that's question. one of the exciting things. Yes, yes. <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know what I want to ask next. So I think next I'm going to ask about um, the Manx Shearwaters, yes. which also formed part of your PhD. So there, my understanding, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you found that there was this sort of butterfly effect from what happened in one breeding season to how successful they were 12 months later than that. Yes, that's right. So um, so this was a study where I was looking at something which is called carryover effects, which is basically when one event in one season may affect the behaviour of an animal or its success later on. It could be a year after or two years, it doesn't matter. Um, and so there's evidence for this, but it hasn't really been um, studied in details. And what I was doing is actually do an experiment where I was manipulating the cost of breeding in one year. So shearwaters breed in burrows and they only have one chick each year and they can't recognize their chick. So what I did is I swapped some chicks between burrows um, with chicks either older or younger so that they had to feed their chick for longer or a shorter period. So the ones which had to feed for not as long had an easier year because they could stop you know, working so hard earlier than planned, but the other ones had to work longer, harder, longer. Um, and then what I did is I put, again, these really small trackers on them and followed the migration and then also followed them during the whole of the next breeding season. And so what, um, what our research group is uh, sort of specialising in is not just look at where the birds go, but what they do. So with this data, you have position data, but you also have uh, immersion data. So every 10 minutes, you know how much time the birds spent immersed in salt water. And so this is a huge amount of data, but there's some complicated techniques called machine learning that you can use to classify all this data mm. in different groups, which represent different behaviors. So foraging, flying, sitting on the water, resting. Yeah. And so then you can actually look at what the birds are doing every day of the year, every 10 minutes, basically, um, for the whole migration. And so you can quantify their foraging effort, for example. And so what I found, so what I found is that the birds which had to work less hard or harder, then differed in the behavior during the, the wintering period. Because the one which had to work harder spent a lot more time foraging. Presumably, they, had, they were in a poorer body condition and had to like, they were trying to replenish these conditions as, as much as possible and to refuel. And they may even have set off on migration slightly later? So yes, they did. They, they started later because they had to keep feeding the chicks. So yeah. they made, I wasn't sure whether they would make the decision to prioritize themselves and go on migration and just stop feeding the chick or actually keep feeding the chick until the end. So they did. No one abandoned their chick. They kept it, kept feeding it until the end and then went on migration later. So they had a shorter amount of time to spend in the wintering area, had increased, um, spent more time foraging while the other ones were spending more time like sitting on the water resting. And then they all migrated back together. Uh, so yeah, there was no difference in return time at the colony the next year, but there were differences in how successful they were at breeding. So the birds which had an easier seasoned the year before, laid earlier, which again is better, mm. and uh, had slightly bigger eggs than the year before, um, and their chicks were quite successful, um, and the complete opposite happened for the other birds, they laid later, their eggs were smaller, and the chicks were not as successful. So there was definitely an effect of what happened in year one on the whole of the wintering period, and then what happened in year two. And then mm. we stopped the study, but it, it might have continued for longer. Okay. And... Um... The birds, the birds which were feeding chicks for longer and which therefore had a harder time in the winter, were they able, did, did you see any signs that some of them were able to compensate by going to wintering grounds where there was better foraging for them? So unlike puffins, all monk shearwaters go and, mig and winter in a uh, similar area oh, okay. along the Patagonian Shelf in Argentina. And so all the birds went there and because of this data is not it's similar to the puffin, the data is not really high resolution. There might have been some differences, but I just couldn't detect any any okay. any difference. I suppose so what what my question is getting at is um how how do these data about both Manx Shearwater and Puffins help us to perhaps conserve them or understand you know, how they're able to forage and what the effects of changes in the oceans might be on them. So by collecting and the, the data that we do in doing the studies we do, we can, for example, well, first of all, we identify the areas where they spend the winter. And by doing this sort of behavioral classification, we can pinpoint the areas where they actually actively forage. Um, and so these areas are very important. Um, so 
we all of our data is then shared for example with BirdLife International and they can include it in um, their big analysis of when they use all of the tr seabird tracking data to propose new uh, marine protected areas for example so they've done that recently with the they've they've submitted a new proposal to OSPA which is in charge of the marine protected area for new put, uh, areas in in the northeast atlantic so um our data participated in this but also the, the the findings that we found that basically link what happens in the winter with what happens in the breeding season for example puffins which might pairs with of puffins which follow more similar routes do better or manx shearwaters which have spent uh, more time foraging in the wintering ground then struggle back at the colony shows that if you want to protect a species you can't just protect white breeds you know because if something goes wrong white migrates and white spend the winter it might have it might cascade and have effects on, on the breeding season, the breeding success of the birds. So really, these birds have to be protected year-round. So mm -hmm. usually that's a problem because, for example, the UK can protect the waters around Skoma in Wales, where the birds breed, but you can't go and, and protect... The UK can't go and protect the areas around Argentina, for example. Um, so that's why... Um, you need sort of international directives to protect these areas, uh, regardless of borders, because birds don't care about borders. Yeah. Um, and so, so one question that I did want to ask, um, I'm going to come back, come back to some of the others, but I wanted to ask about, um, typically conservation at sea has received, or at least in the UK, has received less priority than conservation on land. So, for example, the UK government has been a lot slower to designate marine protected areas than yeah. protected areas on land. Do, why do you think that is? Well, the first thing, I think it's easier. It's easier to set, uh, you know, to protect a piece of land or an island and maybe like five kilometres around it than it is to protect and enforce the protection of, you know, an area really far at sea where no one really goes. Mm. Um, and so, and also I think it has... I guess instinctively this is what you would do because you can see the birds are there and you know they're breeding and that's the main problem right if they're breeding badly then they can't then the populations are declining so the first step is to address that by protecting uh, where they're breeding but actually if you think about it in seabirds yes they breed on an island but all of the food comes from far at sea mm. so even if the island is perfect and doesn't have any predators, if there's no food, they're not going to do well at all. Um, and we see that in some colonies of puffins, actually in Norway, for example, where in the last 10 years they have colonies of hundreds of thousands of puffins, which may fledge two chicks, because there's just no food and you can't see birds coming back with fish and anything, so the chicks hatch and then die. And so I think even though it's true, there's definitely been more focus on protecting um, the breeding areas and rather than... Um, the marine areas. I think there's definitely need a need for uh, a change in shift and really a shift in in um, focus and really try and protect these marine uh, these marine areas. But it's not easy because you need to go where the birds go. You need to know mm -hmm. where they go and also if it's consistent. So you can't just track a few birds one year and say, oh, okay, that's where puffins forage. You know, they might change between years. They might change between colonies. So it also takes a lot of time to carry out the studies and make sure. We, we have a good, robust data set and we know more or less where the birds go in general and then we can protect the species. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's also a conflict with fisheries and with lots of other things. So birds go where the fish is. Yeah. Uh, that's also where the fishermen <laughs> want to go. And so, um, yes, there's also a conflict on that, on that side of things which I think make it, make it, makes it even harder to, to create these protected areas. Yeah, and perhaps not so much in the case of puffins or shearwaters which are migrating across the Atlantic, but for a lot of our seabirds which use the North Sea, they're going into an area which, not just fishing, but is increasingly developed. And, you know, we think of our oceans as quite wild places, but actually there's more shipping lanes. Yeah. And in particular, it's an area where there's some renewable energy and the, there are lots of plans for huge renewable energy yes. developments in the North yes. Sea over the next 30, 40, yeah, 50 years. absolutely. Um, so I think, I mean, I think... in renewable energy is also good for the environment so yeah. this is not something yeah. that we should completely like scrap because we think that it might hurt seabirds but i think it needs to be planned appropriately and so there needs to be studies of where the seabirds go before you actually build the plants to determine okay well this area is not really used by that many seabirds so we can probably build one and also during and after so because we also need evidence 
we also need to know how the birds are affected if there's a power like some you know offshore wind turbine at, um, mm. at sea because it may not have that much of an effect maybe they can just fly around it or maybe they're just all gonna fly into it and die so um again it's just we just need to study this properly to have a better idea before starting to you know expand that um in, in an uncontrolled way um and the technology is improving as well right to help us get a clearer picture of what the birds are doing yeah, so not just absolutely. they're going from here to here but also they're flying at this height that sort of thing, yeah right? absolutely so i mean every year devices are getting smaller and smaller so actually weight is the main limitation when you track mm. a bird because you don't want to affect its behavior you want it to behave normally so if you put a huge backpack on it it's not going to behave normally so every year now devices are getting smaller meaning we can track new species which we couldn't track before or for example in the case of puffins we could only track them with these tiny loggers which are really not very accurate but now they make gps's which are about three or four grams so now we may have a chance to actually track with precision the movements of these birds and other and other even smaller birds so we get better data and it's not just the size it's also the types of devices that are deployed so now people have started to deploy accelerometers which basically they allow you to track the birds in 3d so you can see its um, its wings flapping you can see its height the altitude and how it moves you can track how dive it deep uh, how deep it dives as well with dive loggers so Yes, we are progressing and really um, obtaining better and better data on what the birds are, are doing. So our understanding of their behaviour at sea is improving mm. um, and will continue to improve over the next few years. But there's a lot that we, that we need to discover. And for example, there's another thing which in seabirds has been completely neglected. is that So seabirds live for a very long time. For example, a Manx water may live for you know, 40 years. Um, the record holder in the UK, I think, being 53 or something like that. Yeah. Um, but these birds only start breeding when they're five to seven years old. In the years before that, most of the time they had sea. Actually, the first three years, we never see them on land, or really, really rarely. And then they start coming back. But really, we don't know what immature, they call immatures, and what these immature seabirds do when they're at sea. But these may represent a huge part of the population, and they're the future breeders, so they're really important as well. Are they, are they spending that time in the wintering grounds or somewhere else? We no don't idea. Know. We have we don't know. absolutely no idea about what most immature seabirds do. <laughs> People have only started tracking them in the last few years, but it's really difficult because they're not on land. So how do you get to them in the first place? Mm-hmm. So we've tried to deploy loggers on chicks, that then fledged, but obviously we have to wait four years for them to come back. So hopefully this year we'll get some data back. We only got two back so far. Um, but so I think now with, because the devices are getting smaller, really what you want is a transmitter, like a satellite transmitter, so that you don't have to catch the bird again. Yeah. If you catch it once, that's enough. And before these were really, really expensive and really, really big, but now they're getting more affordable and smaller. So hopefully we can finally try and understand what these young seabirds are doing because for now it's just we have no idea and are you using more traditional techniques like ringing or have things really moved beyond that Um, for this kind of study i i just use ringing to mark my birds because i need to know exactly who they are but i don't i don't uh do ringing because i mean ringing with seabirds is difficult because so when you ring a bird you put a little a metal ring around its leg with a unique number and then if it's found somewhere again then this is entered in a database and you, mm-hmm. you can go and check where the bird was ringed from. And often that bird is found dead, you know, washed up on a beach or something. But in the case of seabirds, most seabirds will die at sea and will never be recovered. Mm-hmm. So if you want to have any information about where they go, you have to ring like tens of thousands and you might get three back. So it's a huge effort for not very much um, return. And also you have a bias because you only get the birds which died close enough to land that they would be recovered. Yeah. So... For example, in, with many seabird species, we learn more by putting 12 trackers on 12 birds than ringing 100,000. Um, so we still do that, and that's still useful information, but um, I think we're deviating a bit from it now because you can learn so much more from, um, from, from tracking. Mm. Yeah. And I wanted to ask a little bit about um, your field work and how that was. So you mm-hmm. spent... During your PhD, you spent sort of several months of the year on SCOMA, living there with the birds, right? How, yes. How was that? Yeah, that was fantastic. So every year I would go to SCOMA when the birds come back to the colony in April and then live there up until end of September when they were leaving again um, so that I could study them over the whole period. And yeah, it was fantastic. Um, basically, oh. we, we, we have a little research station, which is a little house next to the cliffs. 
and you can be on the balcony having breakfast and there'll be puffins two meters away from you <laughs> there'll be some guillemots in the corner and then maybe like a razor bill uh, and then the shows are very close to the house as well but obviously at night um, and so it's really intense you you know there's no Sundays or bank holiday you just work every day uh, but but by just leaving next to the birds and being able to observe them all the time, first of all, you learn a huge amount, um, not just by tracking them with the devices, but just absorb, obs- um, observing them. Um, and then, so, it's not easy to be studying puffins and shearwaters at the same time, because the best time to catch puffins is dawn, and the best time to catch shearwaters is really late at night. And so, what I ended up doing quite some, quite often is that I would, you know, work all the way to maybe 2 a.m., uh, with the shearwater at 2.30, grab half an hour sleep and then get up again to go and catch puffins and then go to bed at like midday for a few hours and <laughs> get up again. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's not easy. So all the monk shearwater work happened at night um, and usually the be- really busy shearwater nights are always really dark, so when it's like wet and windy and that, that's when they love it. So, you know, you go outside, <laughs> spend all your night um, in the rain, but it's fantastic, there's just birds everywhere. Um, and similarly, you catch the puffins, but in the morning when you just, you know, you have to spend hours and hours watching them, like to because you're targeting certain individuals, and so there's a lot, like a lot of the field work I do, I realize is actually just waiting for birds, or you know, I yeah. target a bird and I wait, and eventually I catch it, and then I have to <laughs> wait for the next one. But yeah, it's it's a fantastic job, I think. <laughs> Are there any particular moments that stand out as special to you, either because, you know, something incredible happened or something went wrong or something funny happened? Oh, or... so many things went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so one of the things that we did that was really, it was really stressful, but it was really exciting at the same time was when we were, um, so I was talking about these immature seabirds before. And so I was trying to track the movements of some immature among shearwaters and the three years old start, to coming, uh, start coming back to the colony for a few weeks, just uh, late June, early July. And so I thought, well, maybe I could try and catch them, put some GPS trackers on them, and then hopefully they'll return within a couple of weeks. And at least I'll have some data about what they did during these two weeks. Um, when we normally track shearwaters, it's not very hard. You find a, a nest with a, a pair and a, and a chick, and then you catch one of the birds, you put a tracker on it, and then like you check the nest every night, and then eventually the bird will come back and you take the device off. The problem with images is they don't have a nest, so they just land somewhere in the colony. So it, we did some like preliminary so pilot studies and look, they were landing more or less in the same place all the time. So um, this one year we just deployed 50 trackers. Um, so this is all at night, of course. And um, the trackers have a really tiny blue LED that flashes every, um, every few seconds. Uh, which we normally try to hide with the adults, but then we left on for the immatures because that was the only way we could possibly possibly see them. Because yeah. if you're on a colony at night and there's about a thousand birds around you, <laughs> pinpointing the right one is really not very easy. So we used this blue LED and then we put some like reflective tape on the on the tracker as well. And then we did that for a few days, um, but we wanted to wait for the birds to um, to collect a bit of data. So we didn't, you know, you'd let them go and then you'd see like this blue point in the sky and stuff. That was quite cool. Um, and then for the next months or so, every night we had to be sitting on the colony waiting and lo- looking for blue lights. There were three of us dressed in dark uh, with walkie-talkies in three different points of the colony. <laughs> and then if someone saw it, was, oh, there's one. And then like the person that was the closest had to um, go and catch it. And that was really exciting because, you know, you, you'd see one coming and then land. And then you really don't want to let it you know, you let you don't want it to escape, so you have to crawl like super, super slowly, um, and then at the last minute, like jump on it and catch it before it flies off. Uh, I think we only missed a couple, so it wasn't it wasn't too bad. Um, but yeah, that was really exciting, and we had no idea what we were gonna find. It was like really, really like a novel thing that no one had done before, so that was really exciting and all that. All that waiting around, and uh, I mean, I did definitely did fall asleep a few times. Like the, my <laughs> colleagues would find me on the side of the path like this, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it was really exciting, and it, it felt like a bit we were like a secret mission, like trying to find something very difficult, mm. and like yeah, so that so that was quite, that was quite fun. <laughs> yeah, nighttime field work is is the best. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it always feels quite exciting. And you did you say earlier you had. TV crews coming out to talk to you or find out more about what you were doing? Yes, there pretty much every year there would be at least one TV uh, crew coming to do um, various 
documentaries. So we've had Spring Watch coming, we've had uh, Bilodi coming for a great British wildlife revival. Mm. Um, we even had a crew from Toronto coming to film the puffins. Um, so yeah, this is always it's always quite interesting because then you can share your research with like loads of people. Yeah, it's sometimes a little like sometimes the expectations of the TV crew and what is possible in the field while you're like very sleep deprived and you haven't had a shower in weeks <laughs> um, are sometimes not matching all the time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's I think I think generally I like it and and people are generally interested and and then and then your parents are very proud because they saw you on TV. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. And some of the people who might be listening to this are probably, you know, friends of mine or young people who are studying zoology or biology or conservation or thinking of doing so. So could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, your progression from master's through to PhD through to your postdoctoral position now and how you found that and whether you've got any, I don't know, I suppose, advice for them? Um, So I would advise that if you... If you you do a master's and you do a research project and you, there's a topic that really interests you, then, you know, you, you can go and do a PhD on it. But I would advise against doing a PhD if you're not really fascinated by the project because it's a massive commitment and mm. it's a lot of work. Um, I mean, experiences vary a lot between groups because you might have a supervisor who's really, you know, seeing, seeing you every week and giving you loads of guidance. In my case, I was really independent, so... I had a supervisor, but basically I came up with all my ideas. I just organized everything myself. And then my supervisor may, you know, check on me once every few weeks and, um, you know, read my papers before I send them for publication. But it was really hands off, which which suited me really well. Um, but also um, keep going because there were loads of times where, you know, it's not easy or you plan an experiment. It doesn't work. And you're like, oh, no, I've got no data, all these kind of things. But I think... Actually, what helped is when I was in SCOMA, when I met people and I talked about what I do, and people are like, wow, that's really cool. And then actually seeing people being really excited about what you do, you're like, yeah, that's really cool. Like, you kind of lose sight sometimes. Um, but yeah, so I think, um, I think that's, yeah, that would be my advice. And then um, obviously, I mean, finding PhD positions and postdoctoral positions is competitive. Um, and there's loads of reject- rejections all the time. Mm-hmm. So um you know just don't take it personally and keep keep applying for things i had one of my mentors here said um when i started his position you know it's going to be really tough if you want to stay in academia but you have to be the last woman standing you know keep applying for things and you know when you're being rejected it's not it's not because you're not bad it's because it's you know it's loads of other people out there and you need a bit of luck as well so just yeah don't give up because mm. it, I think it's really worth it. Like I'm very, I'm very lucky. I've had this. I'm very pleased that I had this. I now have this um, junior research fellowship position, which allows me to do my research on anything I like, um, completely independently. But yeah, it's fantastic. It was hard work to get there, but it's fantastic, and so it's definitely worth it. And the percentages of women in STEM in science, technology, engineering, and maths are far lower than the percentages of men. Is that something you've perceived? Something you know. As a woman, have you found um, any barriers that... So, I mean, doing all my time at Cambridge and Oxford, I haven't... I mean, yes, there were more men, but I haven't felt, you know, treated in a different way. Maybe I've been yeah. really lucky to meet in research groups which were really sort of, you know, didn't care about whether you were a man or a woman. Um, I think, at least in Oxford, because this is where I've had my most experience, people are interested in, you know, your mind, what, what you mm. think and, you know, what you're researching, what you're interested in. They don't really care about... Um, you know, whether you're a man or woman or where you come from or anything. Um, I still feel it sometimes because, uh, for example, in college, you come to college and people tend to be in a, you know, once they have a permanent position to stay there for very long. So you have loads of people who have joined the college, you know, 20 years ago or so. And so sometimes you come in and everybody's much older than you and um, and it's a little bit intimidating. <laughs> but um, I think it's also great because, you know, it feels like, you know, I'm here, hey, look at me, I've made it, so, and we want lots of other young women to make it as well, so, um, yeah, and all of, yeah, the the ridiculous comments on, you know, just men are better at science is completely ridiculous, and, yeah, yeah. and, yeah, I have loads of friends who did PhDs in maths and in engineering and all these things that are supposedly more, um, more for men, and they're, they're doing, they're excellent, they, they, it's a, yeah, just just do whatever you want. If there's something that really interests you, just go for it. 
And what um, what now for you? What are you going? What do you you know now that you've got this freedom <laughs> to study whatever you want? What are you going to look at next? Um, so one of the projects I'm, I'm doing at the moment is uh, based on puffins, but um, so I'm trying to expand my studies to more colonies. So during my PhD, I studied puffins on Scoma, but actually Scoma is quite a small colony of puffins compared to all of the colonies in the world. Um, and so I've been collaborating with lots of people studying puffins across the North Atlantic. Um, to track their migratory movement and understand their wintering uh, distribution on an actual bigger scale. Um, because if you want to protect a species, you want to look at um, all of the population, not just one population, especially if different populations do different things. Mm. And puffins have been recently classified as endangered because the puffins on Skoma are doing okay, but as I mentioned, the puffins in Norway and also Iceland are, are doing poorly. And so hopefully by trying to pull this data together, we can sort of try and understand what's going wrong and try and do something about it. So that's one of the things I'm doing. And then I'm also uh, developing a new project with people in Japan. Um, so there's loads of seabirds in Japan and there's loads of really good research groups working there. And I'm trying to um, develop a project with a, a collaborator on strict shear waters and to do a comparison of uh, mang shear waters and strict shear waters. And what we're doing is basically it's a navigation Project. So we're trying to understand how these two seabirds, which are nocturnal, navigate back to their nests. Um, we, I mean, to find your burrow in a colony, you have to locate it in the dark with a precision of 20 centimeters, which is amazing. And we don't really know how they do that. And the Manx shortest and Skoma, because the island is very bare, may be able to use vision anyway, even if it's dark. Because mm -hmm. even as a human, when you walk around, your eyes get used to it. And so you can't, you can't probably rely on vision. Um, but the strict shear waters in Japan live in the jungle, so the way they, yeah, so the way that works is basically they fly to the island, crash in trees, fall on the ground, and then walk to their burrow. We have no idea how they then find, you know, locate the tree or the burrow. So we're going to do some tracking and try and okay. understand how they how they navigate their way around. Um, and I'm also applying for funding to do a project in the Seychelles um, because tropical seabirds have not been studied as much as temperate seabirds. So that there's most yeah we, we know almost nothing about them um and so the idea would be to try and um understand the foraging ecology of some of these species having lived in a jungle for a year i can sympathize <laughs> with the strength it wanted <laughs> and i had the benefit of a head torch yeah <laughs> well yeah so yeah we don't really know what they what, how they do it but um they might use smell i guess or maybe you can still see something i don't know but like yeah it would be yeah. interesting so i've never been yet i've never seen these species in i've never seen the stricture waters apart from a an old video of david attenborough with those stricture waters climbing up a tree so um <laughs> yeah i'm really excited to go we do some pilot studies this year yeah um and then a proper uh, study next year but yeah i can't wait i have to learn some japanese in the meantime oh, that's really exciting yeah yeah it's, i'm really excited <laughs> I think that's everything that I wanted to ask. Um, okay. Is there anything else that you want to say or talk about that we haven't covered? No, I don't think so. I think that was pretty complete. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good, great. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. <laughs> that was so enjoyable. Excellent. That was really interesting. Great. How long was that? Wow, that was 50 minutes.